One is around, I guess, bias training and implementation. I think that there's a lot of training that happens to educate people around bias, to call out kind of what it is, how you can spot it so that people have a higher level of awareness. But what, where I, and what I think is also an opportunity though that we don't maybe see as much is the implementation and accountability side of that. And so you can teach people about it, but then how are you ensuring that it's being implemented? Welcome to the Voices of Inclusion podcast, the place where you'll hear strategic and tactical advice shared by diversity, equity, and inclusion experts. This podcast is brought to you by Matheson.io, the world's first DEI operating system. If you're looking for DEI assessments, benchmarking tools, sourcing support, training, and more, look no further. Go to Matheson.io. The link to connect with us is in the description. Let's get back to the episode. So I know you as a person that has had an incredible career in the legal field and made a remarkable transition into people leadership. And you've worked at some of the most impactful companies in the world. Um, Not too many people have been able to do what you've done. Um, So before we jump in, uh, Moriniki, could you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure, sure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. I'm definitely excited to, to speak to your audience. So I'm Moriniki Williams. And in terms of who I am, I'm the proud daughter of a wonderful mother who uh, raised me by herself. And I think I'm a reflection of her hard work and, and hopes and dreams and being willing to dream something bigger for your your child than what you yourself experienced. And so that that's kind of me in a nutshell. I was raised in Tampa, Florida. And if you see me running from the heat, you might not believe it because I think that once it's over 85 degrees, I should be in air conditioning, but um, I am from Florida <laughs> nonetheless. And, and, you know, so I think that's kind of a bit of like who I am at my core, a Floridian girl who's gone on to live in New York and London and some other places I would have never dreamed of. And in terms of what I do, uh, I wear a couple of different hats. So one is I'm the founder of of Revision Coaching, which is a woman-owned company that provides tailored coaching and workshop solutions that really were focused on helping lawyers and leaders to kind of accelerate their personal and professional growth, um, access untapped potential, and ascend to new heights. And coaching is a really big passion of mine. And it's something that I get to do both in my company and, and in my nine to five role. And so that has me wearing the hat of being a senior HR, um, a senior HR manager and, and divisional lead. And so with that role, I lead a team where we're really leading enterprise-wide initiative to evolve the way we work, bringing lean, agile, human-centered design to the workforce across the entire enterprise. And part of that, I get to coach as well. And so it's really being able to bring that coaching passion but also being able to put on kind of the HR hat in a different lens. But my also, my other background is that I'm a lawyer. And so I have 15 years of experience. I'm licensed to practice, to practice in New York. As you mentioned, I've worked for a number of, of firms, both in New York and in London, as well as working in-house at different corporations. So that's a bit of my background um, across the board for the past 15 years, which feels crazy to say, because I feel like I just graduated from <laughs> law school yesterday. Wow. I know time flies, but you summarized um, that amazing experience in a really short time. Um, But could you talk a little bit about your transition to the human resources vertical and how your transferable skills as a legal professional uh, impacted that transition? 
Sure, absolutely. You know, the interesting thing is when you think about just on paper and you think legal and HR, it might not jump out right away like, oh, that's where I'm going to go next. But when you take a step back, um, there's a lot of transferable skills. So when I think of my journey as a lawyer, part of that is, is learning about people. It's learning about your clients. What is their business? What are the things that they care about? Understanding their business strategy and what, what makes them money? What costs them money? What are the risks associated with their business? What is their risk appetite? And so when you think about HR, you're first and foremost dealing with people. So just being able to bring the lens of having to work with different types of people, different types of personalities, different styles of communication, that's a transferable skill that I think really has been an asset in this space. And then also being comfortable having to have that big picture overview of what is the company's goals? What are they focused on? What are the risks associated with different things we're doing? And how do we make those two things meet in, in a way that kind of mitigates the risk, but also honors what the company's trying to do? Because at the end of the day, you know, there's HR policies. Some are very black and white in their bright line rules. Other have you operating in the gray. And I think that's a lot of what the law is. It's like, there's some, <laughs> there's some laws that are very clear and it's like, oh, you, you can't do this. Like if you steal a candy bar, there are fines associated with that. There's other laws where it's more like it's guidance and we think that you can do this, but the, the line isn't clear. And so being able to navigate and operate in the gray and to provide guidance when it's not completely clear and to articulate what the risks are, what the potential impact is to the business or business decisions, if you move left or right, is directly transferable to a lot of what you see in HR. Because again, it's, it's really trying to provide guard, a guidance and do what's best for the business, but also for the people who are the business, who make up the business and finding how do you find that happy medium and, and how do you kind of respect those boundaries, establish those boundaries, um, intercede when you're operating in the gray. And that's where I like to operate. Some people like to be, they want it to be completely black or white, but I've always enjoyed the gray and the nuance and helping to bring clarity and different perspectives to those spaces and conversations. So I think adaptability, effective communication, being able to work with um, different types of people, being comfortable with risk management and identifying risk management, enjoying unpacking policies and procedures and figuring out how do you make that work in a practical and tangible way, um, understanding business strategy and where your risk management intersects. Like those are all the things that I love. And I think that I've been able to experience on both sides of the house. That's amazing. And I love the fact that you mentioned that you like to operate in the gray because I feel like that speaks to the fact that you are a very creative person, but it also seems as though um, there's a lot of responsibility there. Could you talk a little bit about how you were able to harness that level of responsibility? Was it early in your career or was it later in your career? Absolutely. So it was definitely early in my career. I think mean, if you think about <laughs> law and a lot of people, the most that they know about law firms is from watching whatever their flavored show is from, from TV. And, and while <laughs> some of that is dramatized, some of it is accurate, but law in its kind of raw form is in some respects an apprenticeship. And so you're learning, there's only so much that you're going to learn from law school. You're going to learn kind of how to read the law, how to interpret it, how to understand it, how to draft, you know, memos and briefs. But then you really learn how to be an attorney 
by doing it and by working and studying under amazing attorneys. So I was fortunate to start my career at some amazing law firms and be able to study under just phenomenal attorneys. But so you cut your teeth early. And part of that cutting your teeth is having to explain how you came to a, a decision and why. And you're explaining that to the client. You're explaining it to senior people pretty early on. And so you have mm. to be, you have to start to develop a confidence. And I know like we talk about fake it till you make it. <laughs> there, There is a piece of that, but also when you're being put in front of clients and having to explain and justify your decision, like you're, you're going to be doing your due diligence. You're going to be asking the right questions and making sure that you understand as much as possible. And sometimes you're just going to have to be willing to kind of do like you do what you can, you do the best you can, and you have to be confident that I've done everything I can. And based on that work, here's where I would come out. And, and so I think I got reps at doing that very early on in my career. I was positioned to run deals very early in my career. And so when you're up there negotiating against people who are a lot more senior than you, you have to start to develop a thick skin and a confidence and be willing to give the answer because that's who people are looking to in the room. And what I learned is that when you're not willing to do that, you instantly erode trust and confidence with your client. You know, like they don't know. Mm right? Like that's why they're paying you to be in the room. They don't know the answer. And so I had to also learn how to articulate. I don't know without eroding trust. It's like, that's a great question. I hadn't really considered it from that angle. Let me think about it. And I'll get back to you by end of day. I just said, I don't know, but I said it in a way that they don't lose trust in my capabilities that, you know, oh, Morniki's got it. She's going to give it some thought and she'll get back to us. And they trust me to run that answer down and circle back with my perspective. And so I, I think that that's a bit of when you're thrust into those situations, you're going to kind of sink or swim. You're going to learn how to navigate those spaces or you decide that space isn't for you. It really ends up being kind of one or the other. And so I liked a little bit of the adrenaline rush that you get from being in, <laughs> in that that kind of fire, but it was also super stressful. And so it, it's really but I think when you start doing it and you have like hundreds of millions of dollars and then billions of dollars on the line, you you have to learn to trust your own voice. You have to get confident in your expertise. And then the more you start to stand out there and do it, then it becomes like muscle memory. And so I, I think that I can step out into those spaces and be confident and speak because I've had to do it since very early on in my career. And I think it's a muscle and you have to develop it. And the more you do it, and it's not that everyone who's doing it, I think people assume that you're not nervous <laughs> ever on the inside. Like, you know, it's like the duck who on the surface seems like they're just chilling, but they're paddling <laughs> like super speed underneath, trying just to make sure that they're staying afloat. And so sometimes that's how your stomach is feeling and the insides are feeling, but you're looking cool as a cucumber on the outside. And so I think that's the fake it till you make it. I don't think it's faking that you have the knowledge or the expertise. It's faking that maybe that you're as calm and collected as you are until eventually that does become a little bit of your persona and you are calm and you are, and you are more collected because you know, and you trust your work ethic and you trust what you're going to do and bring to the table. And so you're just like, I did it. And I'm, 95% of the time, like that's, this is, this is it. So, you know, there may be that 5% where it's not, but, but I'm good with the 95%. And then if, if there is a situation where it's like, oh, that could have gone a different way, then you can own that and you learn from it and you move forward. 
wow. like that, that makes that's kind of the gray <laughs> yeah that makes so much sense um and from your perspective um what are the systemic dei or diversity equity and inclusion challenges that you've seen um and what have been some of the best practices for overcoming or even solving some of these challenges yeah so Ooh, like that's like you said it like that's a little, little question that's a big question um I, I i've seen i've seen a ton like across the board from you know working at firms working at in-house just being on the legal side being on the business side and just being a person like both right. inside and outside i think that systemic is a good word to use for it um when i think about some of the challenges that i've observed and even that my peers that we discuss um a couple of buckets come to mind. One is around, I guess, bias training and implementation. I think that there's a lot of training that happens to educate people around bias, to call out kind of what it is, how you can spot it so that people have a higher level of awareness. But what, where I, and what I think is also an opportunity though, that we don't maybe see as much is the implementation and accountability side of that. And so you can teach people about it, but then how are you ensuring that it's being implemented? And so when you have kind of performance or talent conversations, like how are you ensuring that there is a level of fairness that is infused in the system there? You know, do you have people who, so the people who are training and teaching on these, are they ever visiting some of these calibration sessions to be another voice, right? To be someone who can kind of observe the conversation and then give some of that coaching and feedback. I, I think that that coaching mm. feedback accountability loop piece is a little bit of where it falls down because the trainings are great. And I do think that people leave understanding, but I go back to the reference around muscle memory. And if we all have biases, so this is not like everybody has a certain level of bias. It's, it's right. becoming aware of what your personal bias are and then you either have a certain level of, oh, now that I know, like, it's like, oh, I can't unsee that. Like, you know, when you see a picture <laughs> or something like Facebook and the people are just like, oh, I can't unsee it. You, if right. it's like, that's how I am. Like once you kind of highlight something to me, like, oh, I can't unsee that. And so I'm going to be very intentional about wanting to turn that, like close that gap. But sometimes people can put on blinders. Like you've opened their eyes and they're like, oh, wow, that's great. But then they'd rather and prefer to just, you know, put the blinders on and not lean into doing the work because it's work. And that's where I think right. you, you need the accountability sometimes. Like you talk about wanting to go to the gym and losing weight. And sometimes like, oh, I've got like a lot of motivation come January one to do that. But then <laughs> maybe around February, I'm falling off. But if I have a trainer who's calling me and you know, I know that they're expecting me to be at the gym and they're going to be looking at my reps and they're not going to let me slack off, that's going to help me to push through the discomfort and push past uh, the, those, those areas. And so I think that having that type of accountability and structure is, is one of the things that I, I think can help to bring some solutioning around why it is that we have bias trainings, but we don't always see the eradication of some of those bias in meaningful ways where they show up, particularly in recruitment processes. And then also as it relates to talent development, talent performance review and, and further opportunities. And so 
I, I think there's, it's a both and. We both need the training and we need to have a crucial accountable structure that's in place to make sure that people are implementing it. Not because we don't trust them, but because we recognize that it's going to take time and that they may need support and they may need those additional like, hey, that was really great. Have you thought about this? And I think if we're not bringing that to the table, then it's putting all the pressure on people to both be self-aware, recognize their bias, fix it. And not everybody is in the space to do that day one. Right. You know, passions are always high um, after the diversity, equity and inclusion event or the <laughs> yeah. or yeah. the ERG council event and things like that. But uh, when it comes to following through and following up, um, yeah, I think you're exactly right. That's something that I've seen a lot, too. Um, and, you know, you, you've had a legendary career and now you're going to continue to help professionals do what you've done in terms of ascending. I know you mentioned that. I love the word ascension, by the way. It's a beautiful <laughs> word. Um, but um, <laughs> So you're going to continue to do that with revision coaching. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how you've been able to help people get to the next level in their professional pivots in their careers? Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say a lot of my, my clients who come to me, they fall in, in different buckets of what they're looking for. But, you know, in terms of pivots, some people are looking for promotions and some people are looking for pivots. And so there are certain mm. people who have had a good career, a successful career, and now they're really focused on getting to that next level. And they're looking for kind of thought leadership, support and strategy around like what is keeping them from getting to that next level. Maybe they feel like they've hit some type of ceiling. And so part of what we're going to work through is really understanding like what their goal is and like, why is that your goal? Because um, that's even part of how I came up with the name of revision coaching. And it was really giving people permission to revise their version and definition of success. Because a lot of times we decide who we're going to be and what we're going to do very early on in our career. And then we just never come back to see now that we're doing that thing. Like I decided I was going to be a lawyer back in like high school, but then you're doing it forever. Like, is it what I thought it would be? Am I actually Claire Huxtable? <laughs> is, it, is it what I, I all I had was a, a TV kind of version of what being a lawyer would look like. And so you have to take stock of what does success look like for me now and have, and does my life kind of align with that? And so understanding like, what is your why for wanting the promotion? What is your why for getting to the next level? And then there's a lot of self-reflection work that has to take place, like understanding, you know, what are your strengths and weaknesses? What is, what are the identified kind of characteristics for that role? Are there any gaps that you have identified? And if so, how do we then look to lean into those areas of refinement? So it might be around kind of communication, relationship management, um, leadership development, emotional intelligence. And so as we kind of hone in, and that can be both from their own perspective, but then also soliciting feedback from others to get a sense of like, what is your brand? You know, identity is how you describe yourself. Mm. Brand is how other people describe you. And so making sure that there's alignment between those two things, and then starting to map out like a game plan. Like, who do you have in terms of, your, your sponsors, the people who are going to advocate for you? Are there any impediments, both real or even just in, like mentally that you have about yourself and limiting beliefs? You know, what are the soft skills that you maybe need to add a little bit of additional refinement or finesse to? And so all of those things and, and really helping them to strategize 
and, and come up with a game plan so they're able to successfully reach that next level. And then I guess you have the separate bucket of people who are looking to make pivots. And so they are in a mm-hmm. profession where they're like, this no longer serves me. And I have this other thing that I want to do, but I don't know how to get started. And so that really goes more into the business strategy side of the house and helping people to get clear on like, what is that business? What is the ideal audience? How can they monetize it? What are the products and pricing models? And how do you create the pipeline and support? Um, How do you kind of start to transition and evolve between what you're doing now into that? So there's a lot of time management work, understanding how to set up a business, what those structures look like, um, refining your schedule and priorities. Like what's your break even? A lot of times people don't even know what the numbers are that they need to hit. And so it may actually take a lot less than what they expect to get to that next level than they're anticipating. And so I think doing a lot of that work Um, And then I'd say the other bucket of people who come to me sometimes, they're just like, I have no clue what I want to do, but it's not this. (laughs) And and so that I love working with them. And I have a a framework that I go through that really just helps them work on like getting clear on like who they are, what their goals are, um, and then helping them to come up with a vision. Like, what is your vision for your life? I think it's something that we stop doing. We stop kind of figuring out like, what is my me in 10 years look like? And then what do I need to start doing today to build up to that 10 year goal? Um, I think that what I hear about like vision boards and stuff like that, and I have a vision board, but let me be very clear. Mm-hmm. It's based on goals and grounded in like <laughs> what, what matters to me and what success looks like. I think that sometimes people just throw up this wish list and they put it on their wall and then they get discouraged when none of the things are happening, but they're not actually taking steps to make those things happen. They're not actually um, establishing goals and then daily practices that the aggregate effect of those practices builds to the achievement of those goals. And so that's a lot of the work that we do. And then in particular, as it relates to, you know, a number of my clients who um, are racially diverse, who are from marginalized communities, it's like you see people who are operating at the highest levels of excellence, but there's still mental hurdles that come up. And a lot of the things that we talk about imposter syndrome and limiting beliefs. And so helping people just to see themselves in for like the level of excellence and and who they are, like that's one of my most exciting things when I see a a client who's just walking with a different level of confidence and conviction in and who they are. And that actually reminds me, I want to like circle back to your last question, mm-hmm. just around some of the systemic things that I've observed and, and mm-hmm. seen, because I think one of the things that when I think about like, what can we do is around, it's that attaining and retaining diverse talent pools. I think that's, that's another real opportunity and challenge that I think everyone is struggling with across corporate America. And there's a lot of emphasis that's put on attracting the talent and making sure that you have kind of diverse slates of candidates and then you get them in the door, but then there's that retention piece. And it's like, how do you cultivate an environment where they feel supported? And part of at least, you know, me just thinking like around solutions, it requires a lot of deep and honest understanding around like what the problem is in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I I think that we often 
treat symptoms. So we say like, oh, well, we don't have enough kind of racial diversity or we don't have enough gender diversity. So we want to fix those numbers, but we don't always kind of go down to like what led that to be the case in the first place. Like if you have a cough, like for a month and you have a, and you take a cough drop, like it's going to give you temporary <laughs> relief. Right. But if the right, underlying right. condition is that you have a respiratory infection, no amount of cough drops that you take is ever going to get rid of that. And so I think a lot of times DEI, we're treating the, the symptoms, but we're not necessarily going all the way down to some of the root, the root issues because it's uncomfortable. Like when we start like digging and we start kind of drilling, um, it requires, again, people to take hard looks at themselves, take hard looks at others. And I do think that sometimes we stop short of where we need to get to because people are uncomfortable. And, and, and so that, that's, um, I think whenever comfort is, is the metric for, whether you go or stop, um, we're always going to stop short of where we need to. And I think you might have been about to say something. Oh, yeah. You know, I think it's interesting that you mentioned comfort. And um, I feel like that's where this is where we were going. But um, when it comes to discomfort, when we're talking about DEI, do you think it depends upon who's uncomfortable? What do you think? Yeah, I definitely think that comfort is... I think it who is uncomfortable definitely is is important to factor into the equation. Um, it depends on your organization, whether it's the leaders. Because I think at the end right. of the day, like you need buy-in. Like none of this stuff happens if you don't have buy-in. So if you don't have mm. the decision makers, the people who have the power on board, like none of the initiatives really have teeth. None of them are going to move the needle. And so, you know, I've had the opportunity to work at, you know, a company where the CEO is very much on board and he's very vocal about that. That moves the needle differently than if you're at an organization where the CEO is silent on that topic. You know yeah. what I mean? And so it, right. because it, it signals from the top that this is a priority. I also do think, and I'm, you know, just going to be <laughs> transparent in that, when there are points of intersectionality that don't impact, like that are that are specific, I would say racial, racial diversity um, is is a big one. Racial and cultural diversity is a big one. I, I think that that kind of gets pushed to the side, and those who are not racially diverse may feel uncomfortable when they're not they they're, they're like not included in that conversation. So if you're at an organization where the majority is white and you only have say maybe like 18% um, of those who identify themselves as racially diverse. When you have conversations around wanting to focus on marginalized communities who come from certain ethnic makeups, um, there can certainly be a, a response, a reaction that, well, what about others? What about those who don't fit into those buckets? And so one of the solutions I do think is really being very clear on like, what is the problem that you're trying to solve? You can't boil the ocean. And, right. and I think that we have to kind of get away from kind of the impression Olympics, where if you help one person, it automatically means you don't care about someone else. It 
two things can be true. You can be focused on one group and also recognize that there's more work to be done to benefit and to help others, but we can't boil the ocean. We can't do it all at one time. And so I think that I use the example of once I was on a committee that was organizing a bring your daughter to work day. And, oh. um, and it was, it was fantastic. Like the awesome. event was amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> but as part of the planning committee, I'll be honest that I was surprised when we were having our initial meeting and some of the feedback from those who are participating is like, I think it should be open to bringing your sons as well. Um, I don't think that it should just be bringing your daughters. And I, to me, I thought the reason that it was bring your daughter to work day was very clear. Um, mm -hmm. But I also saw in the moment that it was important for us to have a dialogue because there was a lot of back and forth that was happening. And and I don't have children. And so I was initially trying to let those who did kind of battle it out a bit. But but then one of the things I offered is like, what is the problem or the, the gap that we're trying to close here? We have identified that as it relates to kind of the investment sector, like Wall Street, banking, all of these fields, there's a lack of representation of women. And we, we feel like we want to change that. So we want to curate an event specifically for um, girls to introduce them to the possibility of this profession. There are no shortage of men working in Wall Street <laughs> and in these areas. I don't know. It's just like a default expectation that you can be a banker, you can be a stockbroker, you can be any of these things. It's similar when you saw a movement, I don't know if it's been like 10 years or so, but you saw more intentionality around like with science kits and things like that around STEM, mm -hmm. putting mm -hmm. women on the on the cover of those so that young girls are like, oh, I can get that toy too. Like I can play with the science kit. I can play and build a spaceship, like all of these things. You had the seed needed to be planted. There needed to be an opportunity for that awareness. And so I think that once it was stated, people got it and they rallied around it. It's not, but, and I think that another thing is like, we don't all have to agree, but everyone could agree like that is a gap that we want to close and we're going to use this event as a way to do it. And so I, I think right. that you can kind of apply the same thing as it relates to DNI when we get the responses and the pushback is this is an identified metric or data point that we want to specifically address. And here's how we're going to address it. It does not mean that we do not care about those who do not fit in these groups or that we're not going to do things for those. And, and just being honest about that. But what I've seen happen oftentimes is that diversity and the idea just gets expanded to include every possible iteration so that no one feels included. And then the most marginalized communities end up kind of not seeing any meaningful shifts or changes. And, and I think that's really being comfortable leaning into our discomfort and asking other people to do the same. And then really challenging, like, what is it about that that's making you uncomfortable? Why does that bother you? Um, I, I think that, you know, allyship is a word that I'm not really big on a lot of the words that get thrown around because allyship to me <clears throat> is something that everyone talks about. Like I'm an ally, but do you have a demonstrated track record? <laughs> you know, and I don't just mean in the, the things internally that are visible that everyone's going to see you do. What are you doing outside of work to show you're an ally? You know, if I look at your social media, are you posting things that might offend some of the people who are your friends with? And not like intentionally, but just because like as an ally, that, that what I'm expecting is that you are 
going to kind of stand and agree or just you're going to stand in support of some injustices and you're not going to like um be quiet because posting that may be offensive to someone you're friends with who doesn't agree like mm-hmm. it, it requires a level of courageousness and boldness and being willing to have conversations in spaces where there aren't faces um, that don't look like yours and so are you doing those things that to me is and I think that what I see happen sometimes in organizations is people sign up for to lead some event or to lead something and now they're deemed an ally and it's this kind of badge of honor but the downside and the flip side that I've also seen happen is when something happens down the line where you have someone who expresses that they feel like this person is maybe um, treating them unfairly or discriminating, I've heard them, oh, that couldn't have been the case because, you know, they're an ally or they couldn't have meant it that way because, <laughs> you know, that they support da 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 da. And it becomes a bit of a shield. And there's this presumption of, of innocence and grace that's applied. And I have seen people who I know don't care at all about DEI sign up for these things because it looks good. And, mm-hmm. and so I think that as organizations, we should create the space and we should certainly encourage people to lean in. But we have to also be, I think, thoughtful about how we reward people and how we kind of turn that into a shield. Because again, you you run the risk of having people who maybe don't actually support the underlying beliefs that you're you're espousing who now are getting this this kind of protection and it's like oh they couldn't have meant it that way you you must have taken it the wrong way and so that's then silencing the voices of of certain people who are impacted and and I think the last thing I would say on that is those who are kind of racially diverse oftentimes are picking up a lot of the DEI work and initiatives and they don't get any praise for it and so when someone who is not does it, then there's a lot of fanfare. Think about how that feels to the people who are doing it as a thankless job because they're passionate about it, because they live it, because they actually want to see the change. They're not doing it to get recognition um, because I, I think that's something that we need to, to lean into and work on as well. That is so true. Um, and you, know, you mentioned uh, the fact that you're helping uh, professionals take their career to the next level do you see yourself up leveling entire teams to be more effective as well absolutely absolutely I think that's I mean teams are made of of individuals and so it's it's (laughs) part of the it's part of the work but I do love working with teams because even in my own leadership journey I've seen how important it is to make sure that your team is healthy and your team is functioning well together and so I think a lot of that comes down to communication and being able to develop trust on your team, being able to to understand how do you each communicate? How do you each prefer to receive information? How can you as a team set up certain things that makes the flow of information easy? So one of the things we use is a huddle board. Mm. And for those who aren't like familiar with that, it's just a visual um, kind of management system where we use OneNote and we have Um, a place on there where we can talk about morale so everyone can indicate their morale. So at the start of a meeting, you just know if someone is um, feeling a little low, you can check in and be like, hey, everyone want to do a check-in on morale. How's everybody feeling? And if you see that one person, you say, hey, I saw that you were a little lower on the board. Is there anything you'd like to share or how can we support you? And if they don't want to share, then they're like, I don't want to share, but you know, I'm good. Like I don't need support. I just wanted people to know why I might be more quiet. So then, you know, Mm -hmm. you're not like, 
mislabeling why someone's quiet in that meeting. You know, they may have something else going on, but it's a place where we can put announcements. We can highlight who's going to be out on vacation. I have this section on there so I can roll things from my leadership table that I need to cascade. Um, there's an area for discuss discussion and questions, like so things that people want to know about or want the team's input on. You know, we talk about our OKR, so we're able to track our progress right there, what's going on. And we have like a fun question of the day just to kind of be make things light and just see like, you know, you get to learn about people. Like I think the one from I put, I was running the huddle last week and I put um who is your childhood crush? And and it's funny, <laughs> like like from like um, in terms of actors or musicians, like a famous childhood right. crush. And it was funny just seeing people's reactions and, and like their responses. And you get to know something about your colleagues when they put up different things. And so I think it's a great way to both help the team come together, be efficient at the same time and, and learn, you know, I think in addition to that, like, I love doing disc assessments with teams yes. because, you know, when I, when I first did a disc assessment back in the day, it was really just kind of, this is how you prefer to receive information full mm -hmm. stop. And I didn't even realize <laughs> at the time, like, I was like, oh, they've missed this whole other just gym, like this gym mind of what this could be in terms of, I prefer to receive information this way, but there are three other types. And if I understand how they prefer to work, how they communicate, how they show up, what their styles are, I can one, recognize that when I'm working with colleagues and peers. And so I can kind of pivot and adapt and make slight refinements so that I'm resonating um, with that person well. And But then I also recognize that I need all these people on my team. I think that's the piece that we miss is it's not about being one or the other and one being preferential. It's that you need all of these in order for this to be efficient and for this to be a well-oiled machine. And so I love being able to help teams kind of see that and come together and experience that and recognize like, wow, we are actually stronger when we have all these people. And then you make sure everyone's aligned to the things that really speak to their strengths. And you always want to create like opportunities for people to lean into their weaknesses. But it's like, if this person is really great at, you know, being detail oriented and they love to follow the rules and the policies, but I have them over here more aligned with the kind of people interacting, doing more of the hospitality component. Right. I need to swap those two people so they can be flourishing <laughs> and living their best lives, you know, and that right. speaks to engagement. So I think it's a way to get a sense of like, do you have the right people in the right seats working on the right things? And, and if not, how can you start to align that? And I think another thing is feedback, helping teams to yeah. understand the importance of feedback, but how to give feedback is, is so crucial and being able to do some of that role-playing with them and those opportunities to coach on the spot. But like, this is what I heard you say, like in helping people to see how they can package things differently. It's not about being inauthentic. It's about kind of having interpersonal finesse and recognizing that people receive information differently. And so there are some people like I'm very much a high C, like I like people to be direct and kind of short and get to the point, you know, <laughs> okay. so I don't necessarily need all the, the flowery buildup to the story. But then I also recognize someone on my team might, so I'm going to give them more 
of that buildup. Now, I'm not going to do it to the degree that they would do it because that's not my personality, but I'm going to add some in because I want to make sure it resonates with them. So it's just about being adaptable. I think that um, that that's really in showing people how they can be adaptable, how they can develop an authentic style that's also still inclusive and can be transformational as it relates to working with their colleagues and peers. Moranika, you just dropped so many gems just effortlessly. <laughs> I can only imagine how impactful you are with your clients and um, your, your teammates. Um, I just had one quick question before we get to the last question. And that's like, typically, how long are your programs when people are working with you? Is it a few months or the entire year? What's what's the timeline? It depends. So if I'm working with someone one-on-one, -on -one, at a minimum, it's going to be six months. And it depends on kind of what they're working through. So most of my clients are six months to a year um, is, is the kind of initial engagement. And then in terms of groups and teams, again, it, it would depend um, on what it is that they're looking and how much intensity they're looking. So there could be like short workshops that we do for half a day or across multiple days. Um, but with the team, I would think at least a couple of months would be the ideal because I want to do a mix of doing some in-person workshops or even virtual if they're if they're spread across we can do it virtually um, but then doing some group coaching sessions but then also being able to have some individual sessions and so depending on the size of the team that's going to impact obviously the amount of time that we're going to need to spend together at a minimum it would be three months um, to six months again it depends on the size of the team and what the challenges are that they're they're facing and then how much time they have to pour into it because again if it's a team that's extremely busy we're going to have to spread that out across um, a bit right. more time okay six that makes months is six months is a short answer um, and then it okay. depends based on what the ask is okay that makes a lot of sense um so for all of our diversity equity and inclusion professionals that are listening um what is one action you'd urge them to take after listening to this conversation so it's interesting. I, I, I might almost urge them to figure out how they can leverage peers at organizations that are similarly situated to almost have collective conversations. Because um, I, I think that being able to bring a spotlight to the fact that it's not just because sometimes when you when you're coming at your organization they feel like well I love it here and we're not a bad place to work and it's not about being bad it's about seeing that there's opportunities and you care about a place and you want it to see it be its best self you know but right. when you can highlight consistencies across other organizations and say this is something that we're seeing in our industry I feel like there is some weight that can be brought to the conversation and it makes it less a, uh, you're saying there's something wrong with us and more a, uh, there's a gap here that we're seeing that our peers are seeing and it's important for us to lean in here. So I would just, I'll, I would invite them to really see like, especially if they're not seeing traction in their organization, is there an opportunity for me to collaborate with some peers across organizations to really, to paint this picture and, and give it the kind of scale and scope and prominence that it, that it needs to maybe move the needle and to persuade some senior leaders. I think also seeing and getting clear on like, what are some organizations that you're familiar with that are doing this and are doing it well? 
and being able to touch base with people there and say, how did you get this? Like, how did you get here? What were some of the hiccups? What were some of the roadblocks? Like, how did you get the buy-in? I think I have always found people willing to share their story, both the triumphs and like the, the toils that they've gone through to get that traction. And I feel like it just requires an ask and, and a willingness to be able to leverage their platforms. And I, I think that figuring like, what is your, what does your company care about? It's the bottom line. So how can you paint this story in a way that directly impacts their bottom line and being able to show success stories at other organizations that your company views as competitors or peers and that would be persuasive is one and then just being able to have people at other organizations to show that this is a systemic problem that's not just a you problem that we should all be collectively looking to lean in and engage I think um, are things that I would invite people to do because I, I feel like a lot of DEI professionals know what the issue is but they don't always feel empowered to to do what they need to do to correct it because it's it's typically big it's not usually like a, oh right. you just need to do this this one thing and so how can you leverage the collective resources to gain some traction to gain and be able to put a spotlight on some of this stuff and also learn from the successes of those who um, are doing it well and maybe are farther down the path than you we couldn't have closed this segment out better than that, uh, Moriniki. Um, we definitely appreciate you for joining us today. Thank you for just sharing um, your information with us today. Um, that was incredibly insightful and, and inspiring. Yeah, Thank absolutely. You. Thank you so much for having me. If you're looking for DEI assessments, benchmarking tools, sourcing support, training, and more, look no further. Go to www.matheson.io and book a call to speak with us. The link is in the description. We're looking forward to connecting with you next time.